1: Hello and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz. Uh, welcoming, uh, w- welcome to the show today to Erica Clower, the Technology Equity Portfolio Manager at Jensen Associates who is returne- is a returnee to the show. She's been here with us once before. Erica, welcome back.
0: Thanks so much for having me, I'm delighted to be here.
1: And you know, it, it, you come at an interesting moment, right? We were just chatting before we started here about, um, the fact that uh, the tech sector as a whole, after having like a fantastic first half and then kind of going into sort of a quarter long, kind of a bit of a lull, maybe three or four months of a lull where not much was uh, moving, um, we're back to the races again. Um, As we talked, Nasdaq's up about 1% this morning um, after a a, a number of good days in a row. And I, I wonder if you could give us, first of all, like some sense of why you think Uh, The market's enthusiasm uh, for technology stocks has been rekindled in the last few weeks.
0: Sure. Well, you know, Eric, it's been an interesting couple months because the first half of 2023 turned out to be so much better than people had feared. There was so much concern about what the relationship with China would look like and and how that would ripple back to the demand picture for a lot of the US tech companies. There was concern about the impact of higher rates and whether or not that would eat into IT budgets as the cost of capital rises. Right. And there was also some concern about whether or not AI was for real, whether or not it was it was hyped up, and yes. whether or not the revenues would ultimately keep up with, with the expectations um, that this would really be a, an important technology revolution.
1: Right. Yeah, and of course, it's only been uh... – we're, getting com- we're coming up on the first anniversary of uh, the launch of ChatGBT. It's hard to believe mm-hmm. that it's been less than a year since this uh, this all started. And as you point out, in the first half of the year, there was euphoria about the opportunity. And you, know, you saw things like um, Microsoft launching their strategy. And, um, of course, uh, Alphabet made a lot of announcements about their strategy. And then you've seen... Like literally every enterprise software company announced a strategy um, in AI, and uh, and yeah, and then as as you note, know, um, then the enthusiasm waned a little, as I mm-hmm. think uh, began, people began to focus a little more on um, the fact that it's expensive to invest in AI, um, uh, to the benefit of some companies that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, uh, but it seems like uh, maybe because it. Maybe because of the Fed, um, the, the sense that the Fed is done, uh, which is reverses, of course, what was a big uh, overhang on the market in, uh, in 22.
0: That's right. Um, the, the, as soon as the Fed indicated that the pace of interest rate hikes would slow, maybe even pause altogether, you saw an explosive move in a lot of these technology names. And at the same time, we've seen earnings come in either at or above expectations for the real leaders in the space. So I think the combination of those two things has really renewed the confidence in the sector. And I think that will likely continue through the duration of the year.
1: Okay. So let's talk a little about, um, or a lot actually, about AI. And um, we have a lot of questions from readers about AI. Uh, You're welcome, by the way, uh, if you're listening to the show, to... um, to, to chat more questions into the um, box on the screen, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about some of what we're seeing in AI. And of course, the the singular biggest winner here year to date remains Nvidia. And of course, Nvidia um, is like the ultimate AI picks and shovels play, right? Like they they make these uh, GPUs, these graphics uh, graphics chips that are being used for large language model development and for other applications around AI. um, You are pretty bullish about Nvidia still. And the stock of course has come off its peaks. Um, Mm. It's come come down um, and now looks maybe a little less uh, exceedingly valued uh, than it was earlier in the year. Tell me a little bit about your thinking on Nvidia, how long this can last, how do you think about the valuation here? What's your view?
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, Eric, in anticipation of this conversation, I was thinking about whether or not we've ever seen anything in history that could be instructive in dimensioning the opportunity for an NVIDIA going forward. Mm -hmm. And the only time in history where I can think of something somewhat similar is really going back to the early 90s with the the emergence of the Wintel dominance. Effectively, what you had in 1993 was... PCs had penetrated less than 10% of US households and cool. the price point of the x86 processor crossed over to a point where it was affordable for most people and the utility of the software also had utility for most people. And that really began, that that crossover point and the utility price point enabled the PC market to explode. And what made Intel dominate during that decade-long cycle was it's not only its hardware, its x86 hardware, but the fact that it had basically lent out the software language for free to the, um, for, to the software writing community, thus creating a moat um, around itself that was unbreakable. Mm-hmm. And so I see that NVIDIA's strategy, whether it's intentional or not, is very similar to that of Intel's dominance in the PC market. NVIDIA so, has the best hardware uh-huh. um, within the business. It also has licensed out its CUDA uh, architecture for free mm-hmm. to the developer community, which has meant that there's billions of line of code that has been written um, that's native to NVIDIA's language. And then the third thing that they've done, which is very similar to what Intel did, was it's eating up more and more architecture within the data center. It's not just about the hardware, It's not just about the software, but they also have dominated with regards to the networking processor, the networking architectures. Um, So it enables the company to gain more and more ASP within the actual data center. And given that we're at a point where less than 10% of all workloads in data centers globally are accelerated using NVIDIA type processing powers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we still have a very long way to go. It seems to us that we're still in very early innings.
1: So, so I want to talk about a couple of things that have come up that have um, added a little bit of uh, complication to the story over the last two months, right? So uh, one of those is China. Um, so uh, the administration has. Um, installed some limits on NVIDIA's ability to sell some of their most powerful processors. In fact, the list has actually gotten longer of what they mm-hmm. can't sell. Um, that's caused some concerns uh, given the size of the market in China. Now, I would note that the flip side is there's a huge backlog of demand. So it doesn't seem like there's a real near-term like uh, risk of financial you know, missing guidance or that kind of thing. And they, they've pretty much said that Flat out, that that's not going to be an issue, but longer term, it does seem to pose um, at least some risk if they can't sell to the Chinese, who have some of the you know the largest uh, technology companies outside the U.S.
0: Look, I think that the the biggest risk. You and I chatted about this the last time. The biggest risk I think that the technology sector has is creating tensions between the US and any country Mm -hmm. um, and and constraining the the supply of whatever critical components there may be, whether it's memory chips, whether it's AI chips, whether it's analog chips. This is not good for overall innovation if you constrain key competitors, in my opinion. And so looking ahead, I think for NVIDIA, right? In the short term, it really doesn't make a, a difference at all because the right. demand is so great from so many different verticals, not just the hyperscalers, but enterprise, government, academia are all vying for these ships right now. Mm-hmm. But if you look over a two-, three-, four-year period, to remove a large bucket of demand from Chinese hyperscalers is, is absolutely a negative for NVIDIA, for sure, and right. probably for the industry because – the fewer competitors that there are means that there's less innovation, and ultimately, with less innovation comes less cost reduction, which is really the underpinning of all technology development.
1: Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, competition for Nvidia. Um, the, now, of course, at the moment, there's not a lot. Right. Uh, they they dominate this market very completely, which sort of helps explain why the stock's done so well this year. Um, but AMD is uh, doing uh, doing some things in the space. Intel is trying to find a way into the space um, even Qualcomm is trying to find a way uh, to play uh, to be an AI player. How do you think about the role of some of these other semiconductor players? I know AMD is a stock that you have owned. Um, I don't think Intel is, but give me a little bit of sense of how you think about the other players on the field.
0: Sure so you know i think it is true that nvidia will capture the lion's share of the training and inference market within ai and that market is going to continue to grow i think faster than most people expect at the same time advanced microdevices has done an extraordinary job uh, under the 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 stewardship of lisa sue over the last, basically since she took the helm of the company. And there was a lot of concern in the spring and summertime that Advanced Micro Devices would not be able to bring out its own competitive product, the MI300, on time, or that it was having more difficulty qualifying customers. Indeed, I think the company has been very candid that it was more difficult than expected. It took a little bit longer than expected to qualify customers, mm-hmm. but they seem to have passed that point. And the company will be holding an event in early December to officially launch the product along with customers who have lined up to purchase this product. Mm-hmm. So looking out into 2024, Andy should have a very, very good year in data center, not only with its training and inference products, but also with gaining more market share within the data center from Intel. I also think it's important to note that about a quarter of their revenue is coming from traditional PC. And while people right now really only want to talk about AI, and I understand that because it is so interesting, but at the same time, I think it's worth noting that maybe one of the overlooked areas in um, in the technology market has been the PC. The PC market really reached a peak in 2020, in 2018, and um, it had a bit of a surge during COVID. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is that now you've had two years of pretty deep recession in PC unit growth, and yet we're on the verge of having two things happen. One is we're on the eve of a three- or four-year replacement cadence, and people are mo- using their laptops more as they are working remotely more often. And then secondly, there should be some lift with Microsoft's new operating systems to upgrade one's one's PC to, and perhaps even attract some new users. So from AMD's perspective, this is really important because they have been continually gaining market share from Intel in the desktop, but really more in the notebook, which has continued to be a very good growth market. So from our seat, we look at the opportunity in data center as one that's very, very strong for AMD and probably still underappreciated, despite their very good results last week. Mm-hmm. And we see that they have a very good opportunity in PCs to continue to gain market share and also ride that wave of a refreshment cycle um, that should last through 2024
1: and 2025. So, so a couple things on that. One is, uh, you know, I think historically replacement cycles and on laptops have run in this sort of three to four year range. And of course, as you point out, there was a surge in demand conveniently enough about three years ago, uh, three to four years ago when we were all stuck at home and everyone was, uh, you know, I I think the the statistic at the time was like that the average number of PCs per household was running at about one, uh, which was not enough, Um, right? So they have two kids at home, suddenly went from one to maybe four. Um, so people bought a lot of laptops and those laptops are aging. Um, so that would suggest like that there's a, there's going to be a, a robust re- re- refresh cycle, even if it slows a little, maybe from historical, historical pace, if you would argue that some of those laptops are not being used as one. By the way,
0: not to interrupt you, Eric, but I do have to tell you, I am the guinea pig or I'm the poster child for this because I bought um, a laptop in early 21 mm-hmm. and my laptop is sort of dangling by one wire, the screen Perfect. flashes, like I, I'm, I'm completely overdue for an upgrade. So I will be one of those people.
1: Yeah, so, so right, that's part of it. And I think the other thing is you mentioned about Microsoft is they're gonna stop supporting, uh, I think it's worth mentioning, uh, Windows 10 um, in yeah. 2025, and okay. uh, my understanding is that most corporate buyers aren't going to wait to the last minute to replace those machines, and so that should help. And then I wrote a story this past week about AI PCs, and you know Intel has been talking about this, AMD has been talking about this, Qualcomm and HP and Dell—they've all been talking about this. We'll see how it goes um, in terms of in, in uh, driving incremental demand, but you are going to see these more capable PCs, capable of running some AI workloads um starting in 2024 i'm I'm curious whether you think that will make a difference or not or if it will just be you know maybe a little incremental boost to their capability
0: i i do think actually there's going to be a pretty solid um, marketing effort to push ai enabled pcs in the retail channel my understanding is that big retail outlets for example like best buy We'll be working with the software developers and the hardware developers to specially market AI PCs so that when shoppers come into the stores, they can compare and contrast a AI PC versus a regular PC. So I think it's actually going to be very interesting to see how the consumer is educated in terms of the increased utility of an AI-enabled PC. And my strong instinct is that actually they will... Be happy, particularly when it comes to things like competitive shopping mm-hmm. and being able to create their own content on on personal computers.
1: So we'll see; it's coming soon. They're uh, it's coming soon. Did, did a big event recently uh, talking about AI PCs, and uh, that you know they have their uh, exuberance about the opportunity. And so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, and Dell and HP have been talking in the same similarly optimistic terms. So I want to talk a little bit about um, something that actually just happened today. So. Um, we uh, we saw earnings from a company called Datadog, which is a, mm-hmm. a company as a, a cloud software uh, provider um, to do observability software and a few other things, and uh, and the numbers were really good, and and in fact the numbers were so good that they're they're driving up um, all kinds of other cloud stocks today. So you're seeing big moves in companies like Snowflake and MongoDB and Elastic and a few others, um, and you know there's been some question about like the the status of Uh, demand for cloud-related products. We've gone through a couple of quarters where the big cloud um, titans, if you want to call them that, um, have seen, uh, they talk about seeing um, uh, uh, optimization is the the euphemism they use, which is basically customers uh, wanting to spend less or at least be spend mm-hmm. more initially on the cloud. And that has trickled down to some of these companies, right? But it mm-hmm. does seem like um, this was a very positive sign. I know you own some of these stocks in your fund. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing there and how you're feeling about the cloud, which, of course, is inextric- inextricably linked to the AI trends as well.
0: Sure. Well, you know, it's it's been interesting because, as you say, we do own Datadog, MongoDB, Snowflake. In size in in the technology portfolio, and it's been an it's been a painful quarter um, as those multiples yeah. have really come down with fears of interest rate hikes, but also quite a bit of concern on the fundamental side that the consumption related uh, names would see revenues that did not meet expectations. Sure enough, um, today we found out uh, that actually that was an unfounded fear, and that the month of October is off to a much stronger start um, than would have been anticipated. So it seems as though something very uh, natural is occurring, which is that, for example, a lot of companies just got their hands on this hardware, on this capability in early in the first half of 2024. Mm-hmm. And now they're actually finding ways to use it. And so there's been a ripple effect in terms of not only um, creating apps to take advantage of this um, of this new technology, but also even things like increased need for security. Security is a very, very important new area of spend um, now that people are harnessing more and more of their own proprietary data. And so we're starting to see real increases in spending on the software side. It's still early days. I think there's going to be a break between the winners and the losers, for sure. But um, certainly the ones that you mentioned appear to be gaining market share and going to be posting accelerating revenue growth, which is interesting off a higher yeah. base. Yeah, I've Really seeing revenues accelerate.
1: And I think it's worth mentioning for people that those companies generally use a consumption-driven business model, right? So, so the, that sounds, that's kind of jargony, but what it basically boils down to is if you need to use more, you can dial it up. It's like electricity or something, right? It's like a, it's like a, the more you uh, need it, the more you can turn it up. You don't have to like sign new deals or whatever. You just use more and then you pay more. And so when you see really good numbers from Datadog, Um, The implication is that this is really good news for all of the other consumption-driven companies, which includes not just Snowflake and MongoDB, but all the big cloud vendors, too. I haven't looked at their stocks today, but I presume that they're doing okay. Um, Of course, they're more complicated. Um, Amazon and Microsoft and Alphabet, but that would seem to be a very positive sign for their December quarters.
0: It sure is, and I think we'll see a lot more of that in the in the quarters to come from those ones that really are the best positioned. And we are starting to see consumption increase after a much more tentative uh, commitment um, environment. Basically, through the month of August, um, right. things seem to really se- seem to stabilize in the month of September, accelerate in October, and now in November. So one will have to watch to see whether or not this is a year-end budget flush um and whether or not the demand continues through 2025 but my sense is that the visibility is starting to increase a little bit and we should see a fairly positive backdrop drop for all of 2024 as well
1: yeah one thing that happened in the most recent earnings period um that was encouraging is uh involved microsoft um their azure business actually grew a couple of percentage points more than they had uh, guided to, and then the, the street was anticipating. They had a little bit bigger impact uh, to that growth from AI than people were anticipating. And so the numbers, although the, the initial reaction to the numbers was not that robust, but like, I think mm-hmm. that it, this was a very encouraging sign for the cloud. And um, and I know that you own a, a fairly substantial uh, position in in Microsoft. Give me a little sense about how you think about their overall position, and in particular, how, how you think of them as an AI um, bet?
0: Well, Microsoft, I think, is extraordinarily well-positioned, not only because of its exposure to the PC market that we talked about, but really much more importantly because of their position in the cloud. Um, they are starting to see much faster adoption um, and customers willing to pay for generative AI capabilities. And that to me is very, very interesting because if you think about, for example, the developer meeting that ChatGPT just completed, Mm -hmm. they are already well over 100 million users um, at this point. And so many developers have signed up to develop new apps um, on the platform. And if a company like Microsoft can monetize that um, through its seats by people paying more per seat, that's really a great endorsement of the utility of that technology. So I think that Microsoft is a must is is basically a, a must own uh, for the next several years just because they are so well positioned and they are ahead of their hyperscaler peers.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you see um, other of the other software players? Um, uh, are there others that you think stand out that you're excited about? And one, one I think that you own uh, that pulls, that I think is interesting here is Adobe which has been very aggressive um, about trying to uh, kind of uh, infuse AI into everything it's doing, including a bunch of new applications like Firefly. How are you thinking about Adobe and are there other players that you think are also exciting?
0: I mean, I think that in general, the way to think about it is where is AI going to be useful? And the interesting thing about answering that question is it's very difficult to think of a, application which it would not be useful in um because you know for example we are large cap growth managers at jenison we try to take a long-term outlook on all of the holdings that we have here and what we're seeing as we take a giant step back is that there's such utility for literally every industry that we follow so companies come in whether it's a consumer company understanding risk consumer um, preferences, being able to look at those large sets of data Mm -hmm. and pick up on changing trends real time is incredibly useful. An insurance company might look at lots and lots of data points of where risk occurs, why it occurs, when it occurs, and be able to underwrite that risk more effectively. Mm -hmm. We have always been a, Jenison's always been a, a firm that is very much interested in healthcare, and in talking to a lot of the healthcare holdings that we have, to, speaking to a lot of the healthcare companies and talking about how they're using AI for drug development and understanding the evolution of certain diseases and being able to attenuate drug development times by using AI, this is this is extraordinarily helpful. Um, advertising, you know, being able to come up with more targeted advertising. Uh, for a certain group. So what I would say is that a lot of these companies are just extraordinarily well-positioned to offer a much better product to their customers that is much more useful, and people will pay for that. It's basically about productivity. It's about utility. And in some cases, it's about cost savings. So I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of the companies that you've mentioned have really seen that inflection point Where the demand is exploding to the upside Mm -hmm. and we're just seeing it now because the utility is is there
1: do you um you know so last week we got a um uh the white house issued this executive order on regulating um ai um it's a it's a very sweeping document that they issued i think it's like 111 pages or something like that um and is requesting all sorts of things from a, a whole assortment of um, federal agencies on the, uh, to essentially to try and make sure that AI is safe, um, among other things. But there is some uh, there is some pushback from some people mm-hmm. in the valley who think that maybe the, maybe we're overreaching and that there's a risk of, you know, kind of killing the goose that's laying the golden eggs here. that that, um, that we should be careful about not overregulating, um, AI um, at this stage, when we're really just getting going, and of course, the the, the technology is moving at you know unbelievably rapid pace, um, and so I'm not even sure if we're asking the right questions in a sense. And so I'm curious whether you worry about that, or do you think that actually that's sort of a necessary step, as uh, um like to, to provide some guardrails as we move ahead. here?
0: Well, we've all, we've, we've all heard the stories, some of which I actually find a little funny. Um, for example, the lawyers who asked ChatGPT to write their papers and it turned out that it was on case law that had been fabricated. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like cheating on your homework. I think that the reality is that it's impossible to create a training environment, which is what happens with all these large language models where you have all these inputs, whether it's the, new york times or wikipedia or the encyclopedia britannica whatever the inputs may be they are not going to be perfectly accurate okay. and so i think that there's always going to have to be the human eye that checks for inaccuracies and is able to detect when there may be inaccuracies mm-hmm. um, i'm sure we'll we'll come up with large language models to to be able to help out with that too yeah. um, but the reality is i think that the cat is, or I guess the train has left the station um, in some regard because I think it's going to be very difficult to regulate. You see, actually, a lot more self-policing by those that are creating and training on these large language models. You know, ChatGPT being one of them, looking to make sure that they uh, pay the people whose intellectual property they're using in these models. Right. So my sense is that most of it's going to have to be from self-regulation as opposed to government mandated. Um, and I think that it's going to be a very difficult market to regulate, but maybe I'm being too skeptical on that. I, I, just, I think it's going to be very difficult to, to regulate.
1: Yeah. And I will say that there have been some other, um, examples of self-regulation I think are encouraging, uh, one that I would mention. I mentioned Adobe, Adobe with their image creation software, um, is building it on, their own um stock photography stock image library to which they actually already have licenses to all the content um and they're also providing for their corporate customers indemnification um, against any ip violations that are created by the software which essentially makes it usable by a corporate customer which it may not have been without that kind of indemnification i think other people have followed and tried to take in the same approach. So I think there is some, um, there's like a market discipline element of this that will will unfold um, and is already unfolding in some ways. So yeah, I think you're right that maybe the market will take care of it, um, take care of it on its own. I, I want to talk about a couple of other things. So um, you know, I know that you um, you own a couple of names in semiconductor um, equipment, um, and that's an interesting space right now. For it feels like there's a kind of a two pronged future where like in the, in the short run, it feels like um, there's some companies have, some chip makers have reduced capacity plans for the near term. And that tends to impact those companies. And at the same time, in the long run, we know that Intel and Micron and a few other companies are planning very large fabs are are building out very large fabs, um, particularly in the US market, but also in Europe and other places. And so I'm curious how you think about the opportunity there. I, I do always think about this space that like one good question to ask is will we use less chips in the future or more? Um I think we'll use more. But so talk a little bit about how you think about the space and um and why you like ASML, which is kind of a singular position in the market.
0: Sure. So you know I think that the the first thing that we need to to talk about is the memory market which we haven't talked about yet the memory market has been in one of the most severe downturns ever in history and prices have collapsed collapsed earlier in 2023 after a very difficult 2022 Mm -hmm. And we're just starting to see the market come out of that recession. We're starting to see stabilization in DRAM prices, stabilization in NAND prices, Mm -hmm. actually some increases in certain types of configurations of NAND products, and some shortages in what's known as high bandwidth memory Mm -hmm. that goes into data center applications. So that market... Their capital spending was down over 70% on a year-over-year basis in 2023 relative to 2022, which was already down. Mm -hmm. So I think as that market comes back, we will see the memory makers return to spend probably in late 24 and late 25, primarily because they need to upgrade their equipment and their facilities to be able to make these next-generation types of memory chips. Mm -hmm. The second piece that I would say that's important, and, and by the way, just as a side note, I would say the memory companies have recovered in their share prices, but I still think there's quite a bit to go in in those those areas too. Mm-hmm. Um, equipment Are you, companies,
1: you mostly about Micron, or would you um, like? I don't know. Samsung is not something that everybody can buy because if it's because it's traded. I mean, I
0: think that you know the interesting thing is historically the names have all traded together, um, and so I think that you know certainly the the all of the memory makers I think actually will do very well. The U.S. primary maker appears to be particularly well positioned right. um, because they have, they're, they're basically taking a real hard look at costs. Um, it appears to me that you know, margins have bottomed. And when the memory market recovers, it usually recovers pretty quickly. So I would think that this is going to be a very, very good period for the memory companies and the U.S. maker in particular.
1: Right. And they, they've, um, if you look at Micron's reported earnings, um, they're really scary over the last couple of quarters like like downturns the likes of which you almost never see right 40 50 percent year-over-year revenue declines really ugly we've stuff. never like, seen
0: this before
1: never but the right? good news like,
0: is it's, it's, you, you talk, know there's nowhere to go but up
1: yes that's right <laughs> like, when you talk to micron they actually sound reasonably optimistic about the outlook as you uh, leave it out and so i it'll be really interesting i note that micron is on a weird calendar year they They're two months off of the rest of the pack, and so we won't get their earnings until sometime in like mid-December or something like that. Um, So we're a little ways away, but it'll be interesting to see what they have to say.
0: That's right. And then, I mean, the other thing that's interesting to think about for all the memory makers is not only have the companies cut back on their capital spending, cut back on their utilization, but moving to the next generation of memory part has increased the chip size, which Mm -hmm. by definition means that the, bit reduction that we're seeing in the industry is not only going to happen in 23, but also in 24. Um, and at the same time, you're seeing memory demand increase with the PC recovery, with more demand coming from data centers. So it's it's a pretty interesting setup, I think. Right. And then, you know, as it relates to the equipment companies, I think that certainly um, memory recovery will be very important to the stocks because people expect that the capital spending will follow and the orders for those pieces of equipment will follow. But at the same time, what's interesting for ASM lithography and the other equipment companies is that despite the ban in China, what we've seen is that Chinese companies have really stepped in to buy lagging edge equipment Mm -hmm. and the services associated with um, that lagging edge, which is very strong for a lot of the, the different equipment companies. But also, what we've seen is an unprecedented amount of government support for semiconductor equipment. Japan, Korea, the United States, Europe are all writing checks um, for local semiconductor manufacturing to the and and to dimension that the if you added up all of those incentive programs, they equal, Actually, that's slightly greater than the total capital spending of 2023 um, for the entire industry. So that's gonna be a nice tailwind in 25, 26, 27 for all of the equipment companies. ASM lithography is one that we've held for a long period of time. And what we like very much about their position in lithography is it's a very difficult technology. Um they basically have a dominant market share position. They're able to price appropriately and get paid appropriately for that technology, and we think that their basically their margins are still going to continue to go up because of the mix of this next generation lithography tool that is just ramping now and will accelerate in 24, but particularly accelerate in 25 and 26.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to um, I want to bring up, and we have only a couple of minutes left, but I want to bring up um, uh, what weirdly feels like the largest. Technology company doesn't hasn't really uh, that hasn't really laid out a clear AI strategy, and you can probably guess what it is. It's the largest one of all, right? It's Apple, and like, Apple just did an event last week uh, where they announced uh, their new processor, the M3, um, and uh, kind of and, and a set of new uh, MacBooks um, and a new iMac, and uh, kind of alluded to the fact that the most robust version of the M3 was capable of handling um, uh, langu- large language model workloads. Um, but Apple really hasn't announced a clear strategy here. Um, and I know that you own Apple. I think every tech fund manager probably owns at least some Apple. I'm curious about how you think about the opportunity there. They haven't really grown. Their earnings that they reported last week were kind of as expected, not all that robust and the guidance was a little disappointing, arguably. Um, How do you think about Apple? And do you think in the end, they will end up as a player in AI more than they appear to be right now?
0: So this is a great question because Apple is such a big contributor to or participant in the index, so many different indices, not just the technology indices, but even of the S&P. Um, and the NASDAQ. So it's an important name to discuss. And what I would say is that Apple, uh, you know, has proven to be a very, very sticky, has a very sticky position within consumers. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, people, you you might see price competition in handsets, but there's a sense that it's so difficult to to change um, one's cell phone to a different vendor because we're all tethered to um, Apple's web, if you, right. if you will. So I think that Apple is probably more of a, of a steady um, player in this market. I, I think that for, you know, as we look at AI, we are really looking at other players as being the primary um, beneficiaries of that trend. The NVIDIAs, the AMDs, we didn't talk about Broadcom, um, which basically makes custom parts for uh, key hyperscale customers like Google. Um, you know looking at ASM lithography and many of the other software vendors that you mentioned those appear to have the greatest leverage to the AI cycle mm-hmm. I would not dismiss Apple at all because they will be uh, I think very strongly positioned if ever we get compute at the edge and what people are talking about now is that maybe not all of the of the AI will be in the in in basically at the data center level that there'll be some compute, at the edge, in your, in your laptop, in your handset. And inevitably, I would expect Apple to have a very, very strong position there. But that's probably more of a 25, 26, 27 mm-hmm. event. So we'll have to see what Apple does in, in 2024. Um, you know, They've just refreshed some product lines. I think that they're a very, very strong company, but probably with regards to the leverage specifically to AI, we are focusing in, in, in other names.
1: Yeah, okay, I I would note it's interesting that um, Apple has had a neural engine, like basically the capability of running AI and uh, machine learning workloads in their chips, including in the iPhone, not just in the Mac, since like 2017, like they've been doing this for a long time and it helps power things like facial recognition to unlock your phone and fingerprint scanning and improving the video and a webcast and things like that. So there's a bunch of sort of background tasks that it's been doing for a long time and in fact way in front of intel and amd um, arguably uh but they haven't been out front uh yet now i also would note i think it's fair to point out that apple's history is more of a uh, they're not typically at the front of the line with new technologies mm-hmm. right think about the iphone uh at the time the iphone was launched we were all using blackberries so um, so there was already a smartphone business out there um and they, they changed it fundamentally. So I think the optimistic view would be Apple's gonna figure this out. Um, we'll see on the timing. Hey, so I wanna, with our last minute or two, I did wanna, uh, you mentioned Broadcom, which I meant to get to. So let's talk a moment for about Broadcom, which um, it is, I, I think it's, its story is a little more complicated in certain ways than like Nvidia, where even though the chips are complicated, people understand what it is that they're doing, right? There's, those are the primary processors and, um in llm and um, in inference applications where does broadcom fit into the story
0: so broadcom does two things extremely well within the ai ecosystem one is that it makes custom parts for hyperscaler customers google is one that's that's been announced um, it has seen that business grow very very rapidly as google is trying to to, to, to come up with its own silicon internally rather than rely entirely on the likes of NVIDIA. And um, that business has has been a, a big upside surprise for, for uh, Broadcom. There were some rumors earlier this summer that I thought were, or actually sorry, this fall, that I thought were very interesting, which was that Google was going to try to design out Broadcom. We mm-hmm. felt that that was very odd um, and didn't seem like it made a lot of sense, but we never expected that Google would ever comment on it just because they generally don't comment on rumors. And in a very unusual move, Google actually came out and said that the rumors were not true and reaffirmed its commitment to Broadcom's roadmap, which I think is a real endorsement for Broadcom um, and, and the utility of, that, of that, that relationship. Secondarily, they also make network processing parts um, known as Ethernet uh, chips. And as we move to higher and higher clock speeds, the company has a a formidable position there, a market-leading position, and that market, too, has seen extraordinary growth um, and looks to grow very quickly next year. So I would say to take a giant step back with with Broadcom, um, the company has a strategy which it's, it's held to for many, many years, and it does this very, very well, which is that they look for either single source or dual source opportunities in the markets that they serve. They go into those markets, they apply their technology, they come up with best of breed products, they're able to get paid for those products. And how do we know that it's because if one looks at their margins, they are industry leading margins, best of breed margins, and also they generate enormous amounts of free cash flow from those um, from those prices, from the products that they that they deliver to their customers. They have diversified into software over the last couple of years. That has turned out to be a balancer, especially as the market turned down. The company still was able to beat revenue and earnings expectations for all all throughout this downturn. And so, it's just a very, very well run company. Um, I would say to think about the semiconductor business. It's you know probably a, a double digit grower over long term. We at Jenison think of the software business more in the mid single digits, and so you know, over time, we think that the company is still very much undervalued because it's not really, its a diff, as you say, it's a difficult company to understand all the moving pieces. But at the end of the day, the earnings power has turned out to be significantly ahead of expectations. Yeah,
1: you're right. The, the combination of their semiconductor business with a growing enterprise software business confuses some people. And I think sometimes it makes the numbers hard to harder to take apart, but yes, there's a lot of value there. So um, I think we need to wrap it up there. Erica, this is so uh, helpful. Thank you for being with us. Um, many uh, interesting things and many more stocks that we can talk about, but um, uh, we'll have to uh, leave it there. Thank you for being with us. And thanks to all of our um, audience for being with us today. Please join us again tomorrow. Uh, on Barron's Live Market Watch, uh, retirement reporter uh, Jessica Hall will be speaking with Ken Dightwald, who's the CEO of AgeWave, about aging and retirement. Thanks to all of you for being with us. Stay well, be safe. See you next time.
0: The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.